Welcome back to The Lubber's Hole. You're listening to the Patrick O'Brien podcast, the, the one where we read through and discuss Patrick O'Brien's fantastic Aubrey Maturin novels. We are partway through The Far Side of the World. Mike, do you want to catch us up with what's been going on and what might be coming this week? Right. Well, let me start with what's going on. Ian Bradley is a new grandfather. So I, I think <laughs> that's great. Congratulations, Ian. Well Thank you, Mike. I'm I'm proud to hoist my flag pink at the mizzen. <laughs> That's right, pink at the mizzen indeed. And in less important news, but but nevertheless, great for the lovers whole. Last week, Stephen was introduced to cocoa leaves, which are now his latest wonder drug in his pantheon of addictive substances. And yeah. Martin, his good friend, the Reverend Martin, was introduced to an owl-faced night ape and a boa constrictor, but managed to survive both. The surprise's bowsprit was quickly repaired. Uh, we remember they were like waiting, 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 didn't want the Norfolk to slip by. But unfortunately, as they were coming back down the river, a drunk pilot left them stuck on a sandbar waiting for weeks until the spring tide was high enough to get them back out to sea. So the Norfolk had passed by, they were way uh, behind, and they were sailing as fast as they could without risking their sails and spars. Mrs. Horner got pregnant by Mr. Hollum and had an abortion from Higgins. Stephen stayed with Mrs. Horner while she recovered. Unfortunately, she got an infection, she was fever and really touch and go there. Uh, and. He also spent a lot of the chapter worrying about Diana, still very much on his mind. They labored the whole ship and the crew in the frozen 60s with a really tough passage around the horn, which took a great toll on the crew and on the ship. So this time, we're going to, you know, Jack, as I think when we left last time, was promising a little bit more warm and stability coming up. And sure enough, we're going to join Jack and the surprise on a very accommodating island. The sun comes out. Things start to look a little bit better just before, in classic O'Brien style, the trouble starts, especially if your last name begins with an H. Ah, so we have a couple of chases. We have some unearthly wailing. And we learn that paradise might be a little closer than we know. Well, this this could be curtains for Hornblower. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Another age. Oh. So here we are in another one of these great about faces in the tone and the feeling. Having had all of that misery and hardship getting around Cape Horn, we open up the chapter with Jack and many of the surprises at Juan Fernandez Island. And judging by the dinner that is served to Jack, life is pretty good. He's high on the hog. He's getting lobster soup, three kinds of fish, roast shoulder of kid. And Mike, here's the local color, sea elephant steak grilled to a turn. So life is good culinary wise and weather wise and everybody's getting comfortable and warm. There's no sign yet of the Norfolk but they've taken this chance to refit the surprise. They've restocked with wood and food and water and all of this <laughs> green stuff and, uh, and animal stuff. And they're in a hurry. Because remember, we said Jack was still hopeful that the Norfolk could have had as hard a time of the rounding as the surprise did. So guess what? There's not a moment to lose. Jack's now in a hurry to get underway in the hope of still overtaking the Norfolk at the Galapagos Islands, Ooh. or maybe on the whaling grounds nearby in the Pacific. Or maybe he can just get out and make contact with the whaling fleets and learn a bit more about the destination of the Norfolk. Jack has used up most of his seagoing supplies, spars and cordage and canvas. But with all of that repair work done, the surprise is taut, she's trim, and as we know from old, she's beautifully dry, especially when she's well handled. Mike, this is, seems like a, a, a moment where we're encouraged to forget about all the grimness of the Holm and Mrs. Horner pregnancy abortion situation. Because with the exception of the gunner, Mr. Horner, and maybe Compton, the defender's barber, the crew have really gelled. The surprises and the defenders don't seem to regard each other as distinct crews anymore. They've blended together and formed this reasonably tight-knit unit. Apart from, as we say, the gunner and Compton the barber drinking together every night, not fitting in with the rest of the crew. 
It must have been very, very strange with Horner on deck, but doing his duty, even though Jack clearly still doesn't like him and is beginning to wonder whether Horner himself is on the verge of going mad. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, we're delighted to hear that these guys are all one crew now, but these two kind of stick out like sore thumbs. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's not, you know, we don't, Jack's usually a pretty easygoing guy. The fact that he really has issues with Horner, probably a thing to pay attention to, as always. Mm. So we've got this going on. Everything is lovely. It's kind of an idyllic scene. And all of a sudden, lookouts high on the island you know, flag the surprise, get their attention, and say that they have spotted a sail. And it's not a whaler, which means, given you know what they can tell so far, it could well be the Norfolk. So Jack orders the ship unmoored. The Blue Peter is raised at the fore. A gun is fired. They want everybody still on the island to get off. Uh, Bondin and Calamy, luckily, uh, were, were kind of escorting Matron and Martin in their botanizing. And as soon as the gun goes off, they essentially pick them up and, and bundle them down the hills, you know, over their loud protesting selves here. And, yeah. and sure enough, you know, almost immediately, everybody is on board, it's reported, except for the gunner, his wife, and Hollow. Uh, three oh, yeah. exceptions. And the gunner finally appears alone at the landing. And Jack is wondering, you know, what the, what's going on here? What, you know, what are they playing at? You know, are they off picking flowers or something? You know, everybody needs to get back on. But in the meantime, the bosun has told Jack there's a problem with a capstan. And Jack has crawled down under. And the prawls, these things that prevent the capstan from recoiling, which Jack thinks would scatter the men like nine pins, bloody nine pins, this recoil, you know, are failing. And it's going to take hours to set up a forge to create new prawls. And Jack says, well, we're going to have to weigh with a voile. And the bosun's horrified because he's only served in modern ships and has never seen this done. And Ian, I'm going to get you to talk us through here. What 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 is all this voile and, and weighing with a voile? Um, we know that Jack used to do this in the Sophie, but I still didn't know until I chatted with you exactly what this meant. I didn't until I went looking for this episode. It's funny. It's one of these things that even knowing a bit of the sailing technicality, I've always just read past this with half a smile on my face thinking, oh yeah, this is some ancient technique or other. So I went digging to fill in the gap in my knowledge. The problem here is that the main capstan, the captain that's big enough and stout enough and large enough in diameter to hoist the anchor has broken poles. They would have to rig the forge to forge new ones and they don't have time for that. The ship, like lots of warships or ships of sort of medium to large size, has a second capstan, what they call the jeer capstan, which is smaller, smaller diameter, not so strong, not so highly rated. It's used for hoisting cargo in, you know, via a sling from the yard on that kind of thing. So what they're doing is adding an extra purchase, adding a mechanical advantage to allow this smaller jeer capstan to bring the cable in rather than using the main capstan and the messenger. And doesn't really matter. If you, if you go online, you can find details of what a messenger and a voile and a geocapstan all are. But it's nice that it's called out not just as an example of Jack's ingenuity, but as a way of describing some of the social strata in the Navy. You know, there are modern seafarers who do things the modern way. And the Navy by this time is getting quite kind of whiggish and technical. And there are prescribed methods for doing things. And Jack is reaching back into the old times and showing his connection with seafaring of the 18th century, which is more of what this voile geocapstan rig is all about. So, Anyhow, you can read past this and, uh, and and enjoy, I think, the the description that we get of what you might call nautical O'Brienism in the paragraph. All of this lovely detail, and O'Brien is just relishing serving this language up to us. The text says, With scarcely a pause, Jack called the midshipman. I will show you how we weigh with a voil, he said. Take notice. And I'm going to pause and say, we're also getting here Jack the educator, Jack the guy who likes to look after the young men, the young gentleman in his care, and he's really enjoying his role as their mentor and, and their teacher. So he says to the young gentleman, take notice, you don't often see it done, but it may save you a tide of the first consequence. And I think we're learning here that even though this Voyager capstan thing is probably slower per meter of anchor cable reeled in, it's faster than setting up the forge and waiting to fix the problem with the main capstan. 
It may save you, he says, a tide of the first consequence. They followed him below to the manger board where he observed, this is a voile with a difference. Carry on Sophie fashion, Bonden. And as you said, Mike, they clearly used to do it this way in the Sophie, a smaller ship, a brig. Uh, and it says, Bodden had already brought the big single-sheaved block, which is the thing they're going to use to get the mechanical advantage. Watch now. He makes it fast to the cable. He reaves the jeerfall through it. The jeerfall is brought to its capstan with the standing part belayed to the bits. So you get a direct rennet purchase instead of a dead nip. Do you understand? <laughs> <laughs> and of course, all of us who know what a dead nip, a runner purchase, a jeerfall, bits, and a manger board are, all those of us who are across that are going, yeah, yeah, of course we understand. Mike, I think everybody else in the world is going, you seem to know what you're talking about, Jack. You go right ahead. Right, right. And it, you yeah. know, for the rest of us, we can just sort of say, okay, here's O'Brien. Great period detail. You know, and, and like we've so often pointed out before, you know, if this was science fiction, we wouldn't care. It's, you know, it's yeah. you know, ion, proton, whatever, you know, but it's just <laughs> great. It's wonderful. We relish the detail, but we do relish, like you say, it. here's Jack and his relationship with a midshipman. Here's, you know, carry on Sophie fashion bonded. Oh my gosh, we get this nostalgia of Jack and the Sophie and bonded in this closeness. And we get Jack kind of, you know, Jack's always been so, oh, I've just been a lucky man. I've been in the right time. It's not me. But these are these little things. It's, you know, it may save you a tide of the first consequence. Here he is telling these guys, here's how in some ways with our character, with what we know, with these little things, we at least help create some of our own luck. So I'm going to grab a belaying pin, touch wood anytime I talk about luck, and just say, hey, buddy, Jack, you carry on. <laughs> you carry on Jack fashion, Aubrey fashion. <laughs> so there is a bit of a twist here, though, because for all of the great resourcefulness and you know flex that this gives to Jack and all of the great feels that we get for him solving the problem and for him passing the knowledge onto the midshipmen, it's distracting him. Yeah. And it's distracting him from the situation as the gunner comes aboard the gunner comes aboard saying that Hollam has deserted and mrs horner is staying with him and jack hears about this i think we get this sort of second hand from jack's point of view Mm -hmm. and he notices these really unnatural responses unnatural looks even stephen has got this closed expression and he notices that some of the jolly boat crew who brought horner back are now looking it says deeply perturbed anxious and frightened and Mike, I remember the first time I read this, the, the sort of casual dropping in of the idea that we were still waiting for Horner, Mrs. Horner and Holland to leave the island. It didn't really register with me that this might be a, a harbinger or something horrific. But now we're sort of realizing it, the, the knowledge uncoils in front of us, and it's really disturbing. Mm-hmm. The Jolly Boat crew are looking anxious. Jack is still distracted by getting underway. He can't waste time to go find the the two absentees right now. He says they'll deal with the desertion later and orders the crew to get underway. And O'Brien writes, the hands went through these motions with the unthinking ease of very long practice, but in something near dead silence. There was none of the cheerful excitement of getting to sea in great haste with a possibility of action far ahead. And we learned that the crew had seen the gunner, sunken-faced and blood-spattered, coming aboard and reporting in in this very harsh, mechanical voice. And they'd heard the jolly boat crew say that Horner had washed blood off of his head and hands on shore. Wow. And now, Mike, we're, we're getting it told in pretty direct terms what might have gone on ashore and how the gunner might have resolved his problems with him and his wife and her lover. Yeah, this is really, um, it's tense, it's it's dark, it's brooding, and, and we really are getting this thing. And so we've got this thing going on in the background, and, and in the meantime, you know, we've still got this sail that's been sighted. That's the whole reason they're trying to get out of here. Yeah. And so Jack sets a course, his, his idea is, you know, it's getting towards the evening, he sets a course to stay out of sight. He wants to sort of lurk right under the horizon and expects to come right up on this chase at dawn. And, and he looks out as, you know, the sun hasn't quite gone down yet. And he notices that there are like 200 whales around them, more than Jack has ever seen at once. And he's, as he's surveying all these whales, he hears a couple of the crew members up in the sails who apparently above him don't realize he's below. And one of them's talking about this shedding of innocent blood. And the other replies, you know, innocent blood, my ass. 
And so we got this, you know, this great O'Brien scene of this juxtaposition here of, you know, the loss of life. We've talked so much about, you know, all the whales that are being hunted here. Uh, Mrs. Horner, who's innocent, who's not innocent. So another little moment of O'Brien here. But Jack, in the meantime, and kind of, again, this this O'Brien with the emotional flows and stuff, he decides, okay, I don't want to bother the gunner, but I've got to get ready for the morning. So he's telling Moet, let's get the gunner's mate and have him fill cartridge. Let's just pretend the gunner's not well for right now. And Jack, too, yeah, he notices that like the crew, he had had all this excitement about this coming action in the morning. And now he realizes he's lost that. It's not there for him either. So with this stuff with the gunner and Mrs. Horner and Hollum going on, these whales around, he just, he's not feeling it anymore here. So he's writing back to Sophie and he's saying that, that a captain is married to his ship. And that the captain, like many husbands, is always the last to know. And he knows that the crew knows something, but they would never tell him unless he questioned them directly. And he's not the kind of guy that's going to do that. And he's telling Sophie, well, he might ask Stephen as a friend. So we're, you know, we're back to those rules, the social order, the honor, the separation of the captain, polite society and custom and tradition, all the way to post-captain. We had these things going on here. And so he asked Killick to invite Stephen for music. And afterwards, he asked Stephen about the desertion. But first he tells Stephen, look, I really understand if you cannot or don't want to reply. And Stephen says, well, you know, it is hard to ask the surgeon because pretty much everybody's been my patient. And I certainly would never talk about my patients any more than a priest would talk about his penitence. But He says, I will, Jack, share with you what's been said all about the ship. And I'm not going to add anything that I know. I'm not going to voice my own beliefs. I'm not going to tell you whether I think they're right or not. And Jack, you know, is is very pleased to have that. So Stephen tells Jack that pretty much everybody believes that Hollum has been Mrs. Horner's lover for some time. Jack reacts strongly to that. Well, that's enough to, you know, to make any man run mad, says Jack. And so we can't help but think about Stephen and Laura Fielding and Diana and a lot of Jack's former indiscretions. But Stephen goes on that Horner is said to have led the two of them to the far side of the island and bludgeoned them to death and thrown their bodies over the cliff. And the men are grieving for Mrs. Horner. They're sorry for Hollum, but really about Hollum, they just regret that he came aboard because they all see him as unlucky and they don't like Mr. Horner. But they do think he was provoked and was in his rights. So this kind of this harsh kind of view of justice and and the order of things or the natural order of things. And Jack thanks Stephen. And he realizes later that, you know, no one is ever going to tell him anything about this. If they had an inquiry or a formal kind of wanted to bring charges or anything, nobody would say a word about it. That's just the Siemens code. And so he's going to mark Hollum with an R or, you know, mark him as having run on the ship's book. And he tells Stephen, you know, I'll just continue to look Mr. Horner in the eye. You know, we just got to kind of press on. Yeah. And and it dawned true to his word. And, and I think also all of a sudden caught back up with the chase. You know, the chase is in sight. As Jack goes up on deck, the gunner's already there checking on all the guns, making sure all the supplies are good. And Jack now, O'Brien writes, with his whole heart and soul turned to the chase, has absolutely no problem looking the gunner in the eye and speaking to him, you know, kind of from the respective roles. And it's very strange. I find it very, very unsettling that Horner, who is clearly at least a manslaughterer, if not a murderer, has come back aboard the ship and everybody's just got to get on as they were. It gives me gives us so many problems. I think it gives us problems like this guy's committed violence. By the way, he's committed violence against a female, <laughs> against right. his wife. Um, he's c- clearly indulged his dissatisfaction and justifiable jealousy in a, a terrible, violent act of revenge. And that's just got to sit there. And I don't think we're expected to believe that the crew think it's okay to leave it lying or that Jack thinks it's okay to leave it lying. But I think we're expected to see that right now they kind of 
don't have a choice. And in a closed society like that, it must be the most bizarre and un- uncomfortable thing. I've noticed something else while I've been reflecting on this description of the falling out, if that's not too soft of a word for it, between Horner and his wife. Arguments and accusations between romantic partners haven't really ever happened directly in front of our view as readers of the O'Brien books. So Jack and Stephen being jealous of each other in pursuit of Diana has always been told to us at third hand. Uh, even when Canning was part of the picture as well in Post-Captain and HMS Surprise, we never got really a moment where any one person is yelling at another person, pointing their finger, saying, you unfaithful so-and-so. Um, all of the potential worries about Jagiello and Diana are happening at third hand because of this anonymous correspondent with Stephen. Diana is perceiving that Stephen has been unfaithful entirely at third hand. And it's a little bit like this thing about death. We never see death immediately personally up close. And so far, we haven't seen accusations of bad faith in a a relationship up close and personal. And he seems to be carrying on true to the code. We don't get treated to a, a melodramatic showdown between Horner and Mrs. Horner or either of those two and Hollam. We hear secondhand how it's played out. And I think it, again... invites us to be part of the community kind of hearing the gossip about what's going on but not being privy to what happens face to face in these conversations between these people true and and, you know i think it's a great observation ian and and unfortunately and and this is o'brien writing in the time you know we also have a a lack of conversations (laughs) between many of them it's almost like everybody does just sort of skip over the part where you make those accusations, you talk about it, you just go carry on, and then you go fight a duel with Canning, and then you go fight it, you know, Jack and Stephen almost doing that. We've got, you know, it's just like Horner carries them to the other side of the aisle, and I want to say, guys, it's too bad we didn't have therapy back then. Please. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh. Well, you know, we've got this, It's there's so much tension. There's so much going on here. And and the sun rises and we've got this promise of action. And and then, you know, again, I just love how O'Brien, you just never kind of know. Um, he must have been a heck of a of, of a dance partner because you never know what he's going to do next. And <laughs> you know, the sun rises and it's not the Norfolk. You know, it's a Spanish merchant man. And so all of a sudden, oh, there's no fight. They, you know, they pull up together. You know, they get along famously. They trade for some supplies. Um, the Estrella Polar has lots of information for Jack. They tell her that the Norfolk was in the Pacific, that she made a very easy passage around the Horn, and that she's already captured several more British whalers. Uh, as a matter of fact, she's burned one. Um, and has a prize crew taking one of them, the Acapulco, a very slow sailor, they add, back to the States. And and they Barry Manilow, Barry Manilow is never going to be the same if we if we lose Acapulco, I'll tell you. Right. It's right. It's funny. I was singing Barry Manilow this morning. I thought, you're in a strange <gasps> mood. <laughs> I, I don't even care if you are music to write the song. We don't go around humming that. <laughs> There's, a, there's another reference for the youngsters in the audience. Right. Enjoy that. That's right. Well, the Estrella had had agreed they're going to carry the surprises letters back to Europe. You know, the surprises are all happy about that. And they part exchanging these civilities back and forth with each other. And Ian, I got to let you take this because your Spanish is so much better than mine. Oh, I don't know about that. As they sail apart, the last greeting, the last bit of civil sort of farewell that we get is que no haya novedad, may no new thing arise. And Aubrey says, what did, what did he mean by that? And Stephen explains that new things of their nature are bad. And Stephen is now looped into this superstition uh, that actually the old ways were probably better and that anything that new comes along is going to be a, a worrisome innovation. This is very consistent with the the Jack Aubrey, Tory old Navy, anti-innovation, neophobe mindset. And I think, I think Patrick O'Brien's a bit of a neophobe as well. And I'm not sure he always wears it well, but anyhow. Well, 
And, and it's funny, you know, here it is just following right on the heels of, look, the new capstan doesn't work. Uh, get the old voile out. You know, and so it it really is interesting how he layers this stuff. And I, I this this may no new thing arise. This has always stuck with me from the canon. Yeah. <laughs> So having had this nice, friendly, um, civilized uh, touch and go with the, the Spaniards, the crew are nonetheless disappointed that the chase was a Spanish merchantman and not the Norfolk, nor one of the Norfolk's captured prizes. They're mortified to hear just how easily the Norfolk got round the horn, given all of the upheaval that they had. And they're concerned about their friends and family on the South Seas who might be in whalers being taken by the Norfolk. So everybody's a little bit downbeat. They're pretty cheerless. They're pretty uneasy. They're glad to be rid of Holland because Holland was a Jonah. And even in the movie, Holland was being called out as a Jonah, although his fate was rather different from the fate that we're reading about here. But having got rid of the Jonah, they're cursed with this man, the gunner, who is in most ways much, much worse, even more unlucky, even more likely to do harm. They're horrified to hear this drunk singing coming from the gunner when he's in his cups. Come it late or come it soon, I shall enjoy my rose in June in the graveyard watch. Singing in the depths of night is something that we're going to come back to shortly. And it really disturbs the hands. Jack moves the midshipmen who are grieving over Mrs. Horner and were kind of in Team Hollam to some extent, away from Mr. Horner, I think, to try and keep things um, on an even keel. And meanwhile, the ship changes course to sail northwards up the coast in the path of homebound whalers who are on their way to the Galapagos. They're hoping to spot the Norfolk in this patch of the Pacific Ocean. And this drinking goes on. One night, the gunner gets so deeply into his cups that he attacks Compton, that's the ventriloquist barber, attacks Compton, who's his drinking companion. And Compton tells the men that he told Horner Hollam had gotten his wife with child. And this unleashes a whole new round of accusation and suspicion. The gunner comes to Stephen and accuses him. She was in Kindle and you used an instrument on her, he says. And when Horner becomes aggressive, who's there behind Stephen to keep things in order but Padine? And Mike, this is this is a moment when I went, yay for Padine Coleman. We've we're going to get to learn to know Padine very, very slowly, bit by bit. But here he is in a key moment as Stephen's protector, as the gentle protecting giant. And I love this moment to bits. It says Stephen's large, strong assistant comes in, grabs Horner from behind. Stephen has Horner released, doses him with laudanum, and tells him that Stephen can't discuss his patience, but that he would never use an instrument that way and never has. And O'Brien writes... He spoke with an authentic kindness, and this, perhaps even more than the evident truth, pierced through. The gunner drank his glass. And Mike, we've got another bit of choice period vocabulary there. She was in Kindle. That has an association for lots of our readers, I think. What <laughs> Could that be the right association? It's so funny because I was thinking, well, I was in Kindle when I read this. I was in yeah, Kindle yeah, on my Amazon device. What in the world? In Kindle, in Kindle. And I'd heard this on, you know, on the audiobook, and I kept thinking, what's he saying? So I, you know, I, I whipped out my Kindle to find out. No, it says Kindle. What are you talking about? But Kindle, while we think about kindling a fire or kindling kind of arousing strong emotions, it was once used, uh, an engram high of 1803, uh, to yeah. mean to bring forth young and was especially used with rabbits, you know, rabbits being in Kindle and bringing forth young. So yeah, very much a, a, a very spot on O'Brien, uh, you know, true to the time use of language there. And I suppose kindling for a fire is making an infant fire, isn't it? You're sort of right. nourishing and calling into being... Uh, a new thing, in this case, a new fire. Huh. Ah, well, well spotted. Exactly right. I suspect if we got back to the real, you know, and I, I, I should have looked at that, what the original meaning of the original words were, that would make perfect sense. Meanwhile, even with the laudanum, and we, we hear that the laudanum was given in a dose that should have calmed a dozen men unused to the drug. Um, Higgins, Stephen's dental assistant, comes running to Stephen saying that the gunner has threatened him for using an instrument on his wife. And... I can just imagine that reptilian look coming back into Stephen's eye because this guy's asking for protection and Stephen's thinking, this is 
one bit of revenge that is almost deserved. So Stephen advises Higgins to hide in the sick bay and says Padine will watch over him for a few days. And uh, you know, this is this is a, a no. just humiliation, I think, uh, for Higgins and uh, and living in fear of uh, the revenge that that Horner might take. Well, and and it's such a you know it's such a great example of Stephen's character. It always amazes yeah. me. I think Stephen would have loved to have killed him himself after Higgins yes. uh, had had done that to to Mrs. Horner, but still. He and you know Stephen's got all kinds of issues with Higgins. Higgins has given Stephen sort of nothing but trouble, and uh, Stephen still, you know, I'll I'll see that you're protected. I'll ask Padding to watch over you. Here's my advice to you. Uh, you know, pretty remarkable yeah. guy. Here's, but, here's a little moment where his instincts as a bloody-minded um, intelligence officer kind of cross over with his Hippocratic oath and his mission to preserve life. So right. First, doing no harm unless I'm on my other job. That's <laughs> right. Well, a few days later, Stephen and Martin are dissecting a pelican, one shot by Howard the Marine. And Martin asks Stephen what a Jonah's lift is. Well, just at that moment, Howard comes back in and says to Martin and Stephen, he wishes that he had seen this, as he puts it, strange, enormous, rather like a sea elephant that had come in range of the boat, and he tried to shoot it, but had missed and hit its child. Uh, and Howard goes on, it was a, it was prodigious like a human being, though bigger, and what he might call gray in color. He wished very much they had seen it. And Stephen kind of pleads with him, please, you know, don't shoot any more creatures than they can collect or dissect or that the men can eat. And, and Howard kind of laughs at all, say, well, you know, Matron really has never been very fond of sporting and talks about what a sporting paradise this is, that he's got two men loading for him and he can kind of shoot nonstop. So again, we get back to this innocent blood and the whales and all of this coming on here. Oh, and, and by the way, in, in a parallel universe, the other Stephen Maturin, played by Paul Bettany, who's in the movie Master and Commander Far Side of the World, is going to suffer his own particular kind of harm at the hands of a Marine lieutenant that likes shooting wildlife. But if you haven't seen the movie, I'll say no more. Oh, well spotted and well remembered, Ian. Yeah, this is, this is another where we're reaching to another book and pulling it in into this context. That's right. Uh, well, um, Martin comes back and, you know, is, is checking in with Stephen again. And Stephen says, oh, you know, oh, yeah, a Jonah's lift. That's when a very unpopular or unlucky man is pushed over the side. And Martin says, well, he's heard it said about Mr. Higgins. So Stephen immediately leaves to go find Higgins. And as he's searching for him, he notices that the crew is exchanging these looks, you know, kind of seeing Stephen looking for Higgins looking kind of knowingly at one another. And then the Loblolly boy, Stephen finds, you know, his other assistant, the Loblolly boy. And, you know, O'Brien tells us that the Loblolly boy is one of the guys that Higgins has severely mistreated and that to get his revenge, the Loblolly boy had told all the crew members about how Higgins had been scamming him and showing them the eel and they, you know, these things that supposedly Higgins is pulling out of them and charging them money for. So, the Loblolly boy tells Stephen that, you know, Higgins had been in hiding and he was keeping it, you know, a chamber pot in his room, but that he'd had the roaring old flux and that last night he finally went forward to use the head rather than the pot and that the Loblolly boy has not seen him since. So he says, now he, he might be hiding in the hold. Occasionally he goes down there and Stephen thinks, well, if, if he's hiding, they're about to beat to quarters. Surely He'll come out then. Everybody's required to be in their positions. And, you know, it'd be a time when he'd have a lot of cover. So, you know, we wonder ah. what's happened to Higgins. Well, perhaps the best way could be for us to beat quarters and clear for action and take a break of our own. And maybe when we come back, all will be revealed and Mr. Higgins might be found. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. Mm. 
Welcome back. We should probably just take a moment before we find out about the fate of Mr. Higgins to say that if you'd like to find out about anything else or tell us anything else about what's going on on the podcast, we'd love to hear from you on the social media. You can find us, if you haven't already, on facebook.com forward slash lovers whole. You can find us on Twitter. We are at whole lovers. And every now and again, we appear in other places. We appear in the couple of the Facebook groups on Facebook. Every now and again, we appear on Reddit. Every now and again, we appear on the Gun Room of HMS Surprise. So let us know how you're finding the show. Let us know what else we can do to bring the stories to life for you. And tell us about things you might like to hear in future episodes. Yeah. And all things O'Brien, all things Matron and Aubrey, um, and, you know, we'd love to hear about any of you that are enjoying the new Norton release of the Patrick O'Brien, Aubrey Matron book. So Ian and I have both uh, in the last week or so picked up the first three in this series, which have come back out, as well as their new novel, Hold Fast, which I, I don't know about you, Ian, but I, I quite enjoyed. It's a it's a kind of a Patrick O'Brien meets Ian Fleming and James Bond yeah. Uh, combination, which is quite fascinating. A little bit more James Bond than I think Jack Aubrey. <laughs> he seems to have this yeah. amazing ability to bounce back, but fascinating and nice period language. And we're back, you know, in the world of intelligence and the seas and everything. So, yeah, it's, it's a page turn. Yeah. Thank you very much, Norton. Yeah. So here we go. Um, drum roll. Higgins does not appear. Ah. I don't think anybody's very surprised, given that we had this very heavy uh, advanced warning of what a Jonah's lift might be. A search was organized, but we hear that the crew's hearts were not in it since they knew as an evident fact that Higgins had been given a Jonah's lift and no great loss either. And as they go through the motions of searching, we get a, a really disturbing hark back to the singing that we heard from Mr. Horner back before the break, we hear this noise, a loud wailing that starts on the sea and causes the men to hurry on deck. O'Brien says it was a wailing, a great, long, desperately sad, oh, 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 of immense volume, sometimes rising to a shriek, unlike any sound that had come from the sea in the experience of the oldest man aboard. And it circled the ship, coming quite close on either side. Sometimes a form could be made out, but never clearly. In any case, there were few who dared to look. And Mike, this is a crew of superstitious, old school, old world guys. So they're not going to take their chances. What can it be? asked Jack. I cannot tell, said Stephen, but I suppose it to be the creature whose young one was shot. Perhaps it was wounded. Perhaps it has now died. The voice grew louder still, almost intolerable, before it broke off in a dying sob. Huh. And the, the, Mike, we mentioned intersections already with the movie. Uh, not to spoil the movie for anyone, Higgins doesn't go over the side. Somebody else goes over the side in rather different circumstances. But we have this idea of the the, the, the superstition and the wailing and the, the the unsettled feeling in the crew that they might have done wrong and that they're being kind of called out for it by this disembodied voice. It's really, really unsettling. It, it absolutely is. And it's it's fascinating to watch how you know, the screenwriters in the movie and the director and everybody have, have kind of picked different parts of this and brought this feeling through, albeit telling a slightly different story. Yeah. yeah. Well, the wailing is definitely getting to the crew. And, and one of the things I did love about the movie was to kind of get to experience this, not just, I mean, Brian writes it so well, but I, I can certainly understand it. And even more so after watching the film a hundred times. So Jack asks Moet if the ship has been searched and, and Moet honestly isn't sure. You know, he, he knows the men have kind of said that it's complete, but he's not really sure. And, and he says he's going to kind of go back and, and, and make doubly sure. But he knows that he's never going to get the men down deep below again with this wailing going on. And Jack sees that in the midst of all this, the crew has forgotten to turn the glass and strike the bell. And, and you know, O'Brien tells us that, look, even in the midst of the battle, even when a ship is sinking and going under, you never miss you know, turning the glass and striking the bell. 
And so Jack is kind of dismayed because this is kind of everything coming apart here. So he is staying after everybody to get them moving, to get the jobs done. He even tells Moet that it's going to be okay to have lanterns lit on the birth deck tonight. So he knows these guys are not going to even go down and go to bed. <laughs> so they're not going to go downstairs in the dark. Um, and he pauses, O'Brien writes, to see that the watch was indeed mustered. For a moment, he thought it might not be accomplished. For although he had often seen sailors disturbed, alarmed, unsettled, he had never known them so frightened as this, nor so utterly cast down. Um, you know, amazing, you know, kind of O'Brien just sort of nails it here about how unsettled all the things that have been going on have been for the crew, how it's just really punctuated with this almost unnatural, supernatural wailing around them. And fascinatingly, again, you know, just the mark of who writes like this, like O'Brien, that uh, O'Brien writes that, you know, what actually shakes some of them, especially Maitland there, who's kind of got the watch there, is what shakes them out of all this is what O'Brien calls an unconcerned discussion. <laughs> it's going on between Stephen and Martin and Alan. And O'Brien writes that they're eagerly discussing the storage of bottled ale. So, you know, all the men in the officers who are kind of, you know, just completely obsessed with what's going on around them realize that here are these three guys standing on deck next to them talking about storing bottled ale. And it's like, okay, so maybe maybe we're not all going to die right this minute. <laughs> These guys seem pretty unconcerned. And O'Brien describes this trio as stolid and wholly unimaginative, which, you know, in some ways I might think, yeah, it's not a great description, but I read this as being kind of really an ultimate compliment here. You know, very solid, very defendable. And by wholly unimaginative here, I think O'Brien's meaning not given to flights of fancy and a fearful imagination. So this appears to be a very good time to be wholly unimaginative. That's great, isn't it? This is also the second time we've had um, Stephen and a friend of his try and take care of a superstition. There was in the Mauritius command, I think, um, yes. a suspicion of ghosts around right. the bowsprit nettings, <laughs> and uh, Stephen exorcised them. <laughs> right, got the holy water. And I think between, after them. Yeah. between talk, talking about bottled ale and exorcism, I, I think the bottled ale wins for me. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> if you're going to sprinkle me, sprinkle me with the ale. Thank you very much. Well, so, everybody's trying to distract themselves out of worrying about this terrible um, caterwauling that's coming from over the side. They're still left, though, with the, the source of their unease, the gunner, still aboard ship. Jack calls for Stephen to talk it over. He asks if Stephen, as the surgeon, can certify Horner as mad, given the monstrosities that Horner has supposedly committed. Stephen says he can't without examining. And I think he actually says, you know, I'm not even sure that he's all that mad anyway. Right. So Jack thinks, well, I'm going to have to take care of this situation and just stay in the world of steady naval discipline. He passes the word for the gunner and waiting, Jack asks again what the shrieking is outside. Stephen, who's not immune from superstition, crosses himself and replies considerably something of the manatee kind, although the latitude is wrong entirely. God between us and evil. Amen, said Jack. <laughs> and this time we discover that something genuinely dreadful has happened on board the ship this time. Killick returns and reports that the gunner has hanged himself. So Stephen runs out to cut Horner down. Martin has hopes that he can yet be saved. Um, he wonders why Stephen's not bleeding him immediately. And it seems to me that bleeding was a, you know, a, a treatment for near asphyxiation by hanging. But Stephen says that it would not answer and asks Martin, rather, I think, a philosophical question rather than a medical question, have you ever brought a determined suicide back to life? Have you seen the despair on his face when he realises that he has failed, that it's all to do again? It seems to me a strange thing to decide for another. Surely living or dying is a matter between a man and his maker or unmaker. I cannot think you're right, said Martin, and set out the contrary view. Sure, you speak with great authorities on your side, said Stephen. He stood up and lent his ear to the gunner's chest, then opened his eye, gazing into it with a candle. But in any case, he is now gone beyond my interference, God rest his soul. 
Martin shook his head and said, I cannot give him a Christian burial, alas. Then, after a moment, the wailing has stopped. And Stephen tells Martin that actually the wailing had stopped five minutes earlier while Martin was speaking. Right. But yeah, people are unreliable at remembering the sequence of this kind of thing. And I think Martin is quite deeply struck by the fact that the moment of Horn's death was the moment the wailing seemed to have stopped. Stephen says he'll have the gunner's mates so Horner up in his hammock with some shot and Stephen will watch over him until morning when he can be slipped over first thing without distressing the hands further. And Stephen's worried about the crew's superstitious reactions. But I think also sitting with the departed body until morning, that, that's quite an Irish Catholic way of going about. Absolutely. <laughs> going about things anyway. I just have to circle back and just love Stephen again yeah. in this scene here. You know, I love his God between us and evil, you know, and that yeah. and, and O'Brien's kind of setting that up right before we find out that the gunner has committed suicide. Um, and that Stephen, while he would absolutely, you know, not, um, you know, when Diana was pregnant, when Mrs. Horner was pregnant, no, no, I, I can't do anything with that. I can't do that. But with the gunner, He's sort of saying, you know, I just really can't get between someone and their maker. So with innocent life, can't get between them and their maker. With somebody who has taken his own life, I can't get between them and their maker. Fascinating there. Although there was this theological moment here that uh, yeah. you know, jumps out at me, you know. So the gunners died. <laughs> Stephen's response, God rest his soul. Martin, the reverend's response, I cannot give him a Christian burial. I thought, oh, buddy, you do not understand grace. So, no. so I'm just going to have to jump in there for a moment and go, oh, gosh, this is what I hate sometimes. But, uh, you know, the... Um, well, it's funny. I, I couldn't... I, I had a, a bit of that being a, a reminder of some of the f- failings and shortcomings of Martin as a character, because I think he wow. has got them, especially his slightly self-important attitude to his own status in society and as a as a man of the cloth. And, right. and maybe it's also a bit of a fling against Anglicanism for, for Stephen to rail against as a Catholic. But uh, either way, it's not it's not great from Martin, is it? Well, it's it, it's funny because you see, Luther ended up, you know, kind of on on Stephen's side of this debate too, and yeah. so you know, it's something that we always go back and forth and back and forth over. But I love that, you know, here we go. We're in the midst of a nautical tale, and and O'Brien's going to drop this little theo- you know, theological um, thing that people wrestle over and wrestle over in here for us too. Again, it's so much like life, and we're going to get this whole thing of. Okay, there's this wailing going on. Uh, the gunner dies. Does you know? Is there a little change in the force? We might say in another <laughs> favorite <laughs> series of ours, and and hence the wailing stops, or is it just kind of stops? And the way Martin looks at it here, so kind of this whole thing, this whole sequence we've been in in this chapter here, and and really kind of leading up from the last chapter, you know, we've got this murderer receives justice. Um, yeah. Something happens. The mother moves on. Is this a coincidence? Is this you know the world writing itself? Is this what is this? And there hasn't been a cannonball fired, but I'm absolutely as engaged or more engaged than in, in any action thriller here. So I'm just so taken with O'Brien's writing here. It is, and as as I've heard you say before, Mike, you know he he shows us ourselves in our world and how we think and how we are. Ah, oh, it's great. Turn, turn, turns out that we're even more fascinating than we first thought. Right, right. <laughs> so much to think about. Well, clearly, this is this is not a a, a good cruise for unlucky people. Hollum, Higgins, right now, Mister Horner here. So, as as we say, if, if your name ends in H, boy, this was not your chapter. But it's kind of an interesting thing with all of these characters, and we were saying this a little earlier with Jack it's kind of a running commentary on how to some degree we make our own luck by what we do and don't do by our character. Fascinating study here on O'Brien's part, not giving us any answers necessarily, but holding that mirror up, as you say, into our, to us in our lives and ourselves and our interactions with others. Yes. So um, I don't know, maybe all the introspection and the character drama is going to fall away now that all the people with H in their name are gone. <laughs> right, that's right. Or, or, or maybe we've still got half the book left and there's going to be some stuff to say. Well, huh, we'll see. Uh, meanwhile, 
next morning, a sail is spotted. Whew, thank heavens we're back to a nautical chase. Right, right. Um, O'Brien tells us that even if a sail is not spotted for 364 days in a row, the men still go up every morning looking because this could be the exceptional morning that we spot an opponent or a prize. And today is that exceptional day. It does appear to be a whaler. The ship changes course and then that changing course wakes Jack Aubrey up from his deep sleep. On deck, Jack is glad that Alan has used his common sense and already changed the surprise's course to intercept this ship on the horizon. Alan tells him that the two Gibraltar lunatics with Horner's body <laughs> had misunderstood directions and have already slipped the body over the side. And Jack thinks that that might be for the better. So the chase appears then to be just what everyone needs. The gunner is over the side. Maybe some of the superstition and the Jonah kind of way of thinking is, uh, is, is behind us now. And with the very best seamanship, they might just catch her before nightfall so that she can't get away in the darkness. Everyone's pulling together really well. We, we talked before about how the surprises and the defenders seem to have blended as a crew. Um, Jack is in perfect touch with his ship, the surprise. And as they catch up with the chase, they realise it's a whaler, a British-built whaler. And the Surprises crew know that if this whaler had been taken more than 24 hours ago and they take her, then it's salvage, not a prize. And that's actually sometimes something that can generate uh, more favourable payment terms and more direct compensation. So Stephen comes on deck and it, he gets to look out at something that's uh, new and promising. He gets to see the beautiful blue sky, the blue ocean, wind in the sails, and Jack invites him to come over and look at the chase. Now, Stephen doesn't understand why they're moving away from the chase and not towards her. So Jack explains, as he often has to do, that the two ships are sailing so that he'll come up to her over time without looking like he's chasing. So he'll gradually creep up on the weather gauge without looking threatening. And Jack believes, Jack being a Barry Manilow fan, right. this ship is the Acapulco that the Spaniards spoke of. Yeah. Well, everybody goes quickly. They go back on deck to watch the chase, except, of course, Stephen and Martin. And as it turns out, the purser, because they wanted to stay for the pudding. Uh, O'Brien tells us it was a long gray pudding made with sea elephant suet and studded with Juan Fernandez berries. And, and in case, listeners, in case you're wondering, yes, the recipe is in the Patrick O'Brien cookbook, Lopscouse and Spotted Dogs, <laughs> amazingly. Although the uh, the sea elephant steak was not that started the chapter, this pudding is. So, so, you know, I guess you just grill the sea elephant as you would grill anything else. But for the pudding, you can go right here to the recipe. Well, Stephen is talking. So the three of them are sitting there as everybody's run back on deck. And he's talking about the difference in the crew. And he says it's the most extreme example of the seaman's volatility that he's ever seen. That yesterday they were silent, anxious, they had all these haunted faces. There was no laughter or quips, just this sense of impending, ineluctable doom. And today, yeah, briskety, lively eyes, as he says, they're just all hop, skip, and jump. And Stephen wonders whether it's not, as he says, just childish fribbles. <laughs> and then we get this great moment of O'Brien humor because the, the scene shifts and we've got Stephen Martin and the purser in the gun room eating. And on the other side of the door is the gun room steward. And he says, fribble yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and and O'Brien tells us that, that the gun room steward and Killick are sitting there finishing off all the officer's wine. <laughs> and, and so then we shift back into the gun room with Stephen talking. He said, it's not just childish fribbles or weathercocks. He's just weather gauges <laughs> flipping around like the seaman's moods here. So, uh, But Stephen says, you reflect that these same people circumnavigate the entire trackless globe, sometimes in trying circumstances, which argues a certain consistency. So, it's, you know, it's this great reflection on Stephen, you know, are these guys just, you know, kind of flitting all over childish fribbles or so constant that they're the only ones who can do this thing about going around the earth like they do. And Martin jumps in and says, I've heard their levity put down 
to there being no more than a nine-inch plank between them and eternity, something we've we've heard elsewhere in the canon. But now we've got the purser jump and say, nine-inch, said the purser. <laughs> and the purser's just laughing. He says, why, if you're given to levity with nine inches under you, what must you be in a little old light-built frigate? A flaming gas balloon, no doubt. So if your levity takes you up with nine inches, because you must be just flying in a balloon now, because he says, God dear me, there are parts of the surprises bottom where you could push a penknife through with ease. Nine inches. Oh, Lord. <laughs> so here we go. Oh, my gosh. You know, um, you know, we've had all this stuff going on. Now we're back to the chase. Now we've got this throwaway comment with Stephen. We've got a scene with the, you know, with uh, the the you know the other part sort of upstairs downstairs the downstairs part behind the door laughing we've got the purser's comment and then we get this thing about a part you could push a penknife through with ease so O'Brien humor check foreshadowing maybe we're not sure but possibly yeah. so you know, delightful to read double check could have a double meaning and implications absolute check yeah. <laughs> who, who writes like this and electable un, unable to be resisted or avoided inescapable well wait a minute i'm thinking this has got to be you know an engram of the time but actually it kind of goes from nowhere to a peak in 2003 i'm oh. scratching my head but we go back to this childish fribble, fribble. I'm going, okay, how about that one? Well, that's a solid 1800 engram. So a, uh, a frivolous or foolish person. So I don't I know. Knew, I knew he was on safe ground with a fribble. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah. By the way, I haven't been on safe ground with Barry Manilow and Acapulco. It turned out that was the four tops I'm thinking of Barry Manilow and the Copacabana, but never mind. <laughs> well, I wondered about the Copacabana, but I think it's somewhere down near Acapulco for sure. Yeah. Or, yeah. <laughs> or Rio, somewhere. Well, you know, it all works. It's all tropical for us. Oh, well, this conversation is finally, you know, between the three of them in the gun room and the stewards behind the door is topped off by a child appearing on the scene. You know, yet another classic O'Brien move, another one of his greatest hits, as you were mentioning last week. Sir, cried Callum, running in and standing by Stephen's chair. The whale has taken in her top gallant cells. We are to go about any minute now and we'll overhaul her by the end of the watch as sure as eggs is eggs. Please, sir, with an affectionate look, may I have a slice of pudding? chasing his desperate hungry work <laughs> oh i i just love this it, you know chasing his desperate hungry work you know, the, the poor midshipmen usually down to rats and you know, <laughs> eating eating in their their little place not not being invited necessarily the captain not being over there in the, in the gun room and and here they are i love this so you know jack Stephen O'Brien, children, children on ships, children at war, all our love of children, frustration with children, all this part of the human condition. And another example, again, of something O'Brien does so well, the movie lifts really well, albeit with a different child yeah. um, and, and not the same scene from Far Side of the World, but a different one. And so, you know, again, greatest hits. Here we are. Yeah, it certainly does. And guess what? They, they catch the Copacabana, I mean the Acapulco, sooner than expected. Barry Manilow is not going to last for much longer. Um, they use Jack's famous false colours, ruse de guerre, um, this time using a Spanish ensign. The Acapulco surrenders immediately. No shots are fired. Interestingly, Mike, I think we might get through quite a long way of this book with very little actual bloodshed at war, but lots and lots of cold-blooded bloodshed between human beings and animals. Right, right. Slightly different than the movie. <laughs> yeah, slightly different. So the American prize crew aboard the Acapulco is commanded by a fellow called Caleb Gill. And Caleb Gill sounds like the kind of fellow we might have met in Boston back in Fortune of War. But he is a nephew of the captain of the Norfolk. So the surprises are delighted with the crew. Um, they've captured a cargo worth about $100,000, according to Mr. Allen. That's whale oil, spermaceti. Um, she's got spars and cordage and, and sailcloth for a two-and-a-half-year cruise. So Jack and the officers of the surprise are getting all of their needs taken care of. The kindness that's shown between the officers and the crew, between the surprises and the Americans, results in Jack hearing all about the Norfolk's 
past and future movements. In one conversation, the American Mr. Gill talks about how upset he had been at having to take the Acapulco back. He has a keen interest in primitive men, and we introduce now to this idea of what Uncle Palmer's paradise might be. <laughs> Caleb Gill is interested in what he calls the noble savage. He's travelled among Native Americans, and he's keenly disappointed to miss the Marquesa Islands, especially on the island Wahiva, which is what his Uncle Palmer calls a paradise. Stephen remembers reading about this in the letter that was intercepted. Gill is talking pretty freely about what's, what's going on and what he thinks of it. He says he's not sure how the island is governed, but knows that the native people rely heavy on prohibitions, taboos, and relationship. The people are amiable and good-looking. Their only vices, it says, are cannibalism and unlimited fornication. When you put it like that. Right. Um, but not cannibalism as a part of a ceremony or as part of a religious system, but just as matters of taste and inclination. And Stephen asks if Uncle Palmer means to change their way of life. And Gill assures him that his uncle thinks it's quite utopian as it is. Liberty Hall, he says. Liberty Hall writ large. And Gill wants to see it before it changes at all. And he hopes that Captain Aubrey will take him there as a prisoner so he can do so. Stephen says, as Stephen knows fine well, that the captain's intention can't be known and can't be kind of commanded. But he too, he, Stephen, would also like to see it. And I can imagine Stephen's libertarian, utopian, um, freedom-loving brain might and heart might quite love the idea of this kind of utopia. Um, he too would like to see it. He's going to ask the captain and hopes that we may all three, I think he means Maturin, Gill and Aubrey, Right. We may all three tread the shores of Huahiva before the islanders have been corrupted. Hmm. Again, I, I can't remember. I, I've got to go back and rewatch the movie. I'm trying to think in my mind how they handled the cannibalism. and, no, and, there's, and there's, no, there's no cannibalism. The, the movie gets as far as the Galapagos <laughs> and, uh, and then they encounter with the Asheron and then they all go home. Right. <laughs> so we, we don't get any of this, unfortunately. Right. We'll have to see who takes us to paradise, the book or the movie. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, as, as we're coming to the end of the chapter here and, and we change scenes a little bit, Jack is talking with Mr. Allen and he's talking about, you know, they've captured the Acapulco and he's wants to know if Allen thinks he's got a good plan because he's thinking about rather than taking this Acapulco back to England, he wonders if perhaps uh, the Acapulco's owner has an agent in Valparaiso because um, Jack really doesn't have enough crew to spare. You know, he's already sent pullings away with one ship. He doesn't want to send Moat away with another. Um, so he's wondering, you know, maybe we can just drop her off right here. Um, and that way, by the way, we get the money very quickly for the crew and he says, I can liberate all the American prisoners on parole there and not have to worry about housing and feeding them for the rest of the journey. Wow. Yeah. And so uh, O'Brien writes, this would be killing two birds. He paused, frowned, muttered over one style and then went on. <laughs> well, never mind. But but that would be the most seamanlike way of dealing with the situation, short of making them walk the plank. So it's not the best Aubreyism, but but it'll do here. And and Jack, you know, it, it, part of the reason Jack's so concerned about this is, you know, one, he doesn't want this thing headed all the way back to England. Two, he really wants to catch the Norfolk and thinks if he really cracks on now, he can catch her in the Galapagos Islands. So he's saying that. Um, you know, he, he'll give this thing 24 hours, but no more than that. So whoever takes the chase in to Valparaiso was going to have 24 hours to get in there, to drop off the Americans, to negotiate the salvage for the ship, and then to get back out here to meet the surprise or to be left behind. You know, Jack says, you know, he doesn't want to take the surprise in there and be lying windbound, exchanging platitudes with post admirals, generals, governors, even bishops, God forbid. But, <laughs> if a, but yeah, if a subordinate officer takes the chase in, they wouldn't have to do all that. So it's worth 24 hours, no more. Alan says it's a good plan and volunteers himself for the mission. He knows 
Valparaiso well. He speaks the language well enough. He's known that agent, Mr. Metcalf, the agent for the Acapulco, for 20 years. So Jack says, that's great. I think this is what Jack had in mind, but was not going to order him to do it. And tells Alan, you know, you pick your crew for the cutter to take her in. You pick your crew for the prize. And then ask Killick to send in the American officers. So I guess he's going to, you know, he's going to tell them what's in store. And here we end chapter six. Mm. And and it's a pretty genuine sort of cliffhanger. What happens next? You know, we haven't been treated to a beautiful view of some kind of cinematic uh, tableau like we often do at the end of chapters. But I think I think we've squeezed a lot in here, haven't we? It's been oh, really? a bit of an emotional roller coaster. Yes. Yeah, we've we've gone from bad times to good weather-wise, but we've gone from bad times to worse if your name starts with an H. We've lost Mrs. Horner, we've lost Mr. Hollum, we've lost Higgins, we've lost Mr. Gunner Horner. It's been a bad chapter for the H's. Um, British fans of Line of Duty will be thinking, oh yeah, H, yeah, thought so. But still, still we have no sign of the Norfolk. Perhaps she's closer, and the surprise and the crew are perhaps in better shape than they were at the beginning of the chapter to meet her. Absolutely right, Ian. And and I'm a little bit concerned about this idea of losing Alan. I mean, you know, Alan seems to be absolutely the right guy to take this thing in, but, you know, Alan's our guy who knows these waters. He knows where they can, well, it doesn't sound like they have to refit right now, but, you know, Alan's really their local knowledge. And I'm, I'm, I'm concerned that, okay, we've got this fast 24-hour setup time. What if Alan doesn't make it out in time here? This seems like when they may need him the most. Um, And we started out this story with a fragile piece among the warrant officers, and Alan is one of those. And I think losing him risks destabilizing um, that part of the ship's crew again, but I don't know. Yeah, that's right. Well, we've lost the gunner. If we lost Alan, yeah, that that not a not a great sign. Um, so, and and you know, while we've got a happy crew now, you know, we still have to remember we've got Compton on there. Um, so we still got one bad apple, and we've heard no more in this chapter about Stephen's situation with Diana, and so it's always on my mind here. Yeah. And it's certainly clearly on Stephen's mind as well. So, Mike, what do you think? Are we going to catch the Norfolk next time? Are there going to be any more twists and turns? I guess we'll just have to take the book back down off the shelf for Chapter 7. What do you say to a tiny bit more Patrick O'Brien? Oh, with all my heart. <laughs> <laughs> 